1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York City, we've got our uh, regular Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School. How are you doing today, Ryan?
2: Very well, David. Thanks.
1: And in Washington, D.C., we have another of our uh, regulars, uh, uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a practicing physician, was also a senior official in the Obama White House, covering health policy, also has worked on the Hill. How are you doing today, Kavita?
0: Good, excited to have my Congressman here, Montgomery County, proud MOCO.
1: Well, and there's the beginning of the introduction of our special guest today, (laughs) Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland. you know, the Congress of the United States is not an institution that's known for the high intellectual caliber of all of its occupants, but we have found that Jamie Raskin is one of the very, very smartest people that you'll not only meet in the Congress, but anywhere, and we're really glad to have him. Uh, how are you doing today, Congressman?
3: Excellent. I'm feeling better and better every day, David, as we get closer to the election, and um, uh, Trump has been unable to change the fundamental dynamics of the race. So uh, but remember, when we get to November 3rd, it's just halftime because at that point they pull out their bag of tricks. And then we're going to have to be defending what we hope will be a landslide majority in the state capitals, in the electoral college count, possibly in a contingent election. And let's hope not, but maybe the Supreme Court, too.
1: Yeah, we just finished a special episode that we, we did immediately before this one on election security. And I have to say it gave me a stomachache. (laughs) <laughs> so what I what I, what I I think we're going to do here is I'm going to kick off. Ryan will have a question, and then Kavita will have a question for you, and then maybe I'll have one. And uh, we're grateful for your taking the time to join us. Ryan.
3: I'm oh, psyched to be here. Uh,
2: thanks so much for being here. And I guess the question I have is leading off of what you just mentioned, which is uh, what uh, Democrats in Congress can do to counteract the legal bag of tricks that the Trump campaign might spring out in order to. For lack of a better term, steal the election if Trump actually loses. And uh, just uh, recently, David French, a conservative legal commentator, I don't know if he self-describes as a Never Trumper, but he's close to her in that category, tweeted quote: "It is deeply disturbing that virtually everywhere, the concerted litigation strategy of the GOP is to make sure that fewer votes count. The strategy goes far, far beyond any legitimate concern about fraud." End quote. So I guess the thought is it would be very helpful to have you talk about what the points of leverage are that Democrats mm-hmm. and Congress have to, in some sense, socialize people, to be able to understand them better already, to know what to anticipate. So a couple ideas that I have in mind are, let's imagine um, the clock starts running. It's actually not necessarily in the, in Trump's favor to try to run out the clock because the 20th Amendment says that the Speaker of the House will become uh, the acting president on January 20th, if it's a contested election. And therefore, it might give the Speaker of the House great leverage uh, when things get potentially disputed in the Electoral College um, over the holding of a quorum. She gets to not hold a quorum if she wants to. And that seems to me like a significant point of leverage um, because if they can't meet, then we get to January 20th. Um, Another point of leverage is I think many people Many listeners might think that the new Congress comes in with the new president on January 20th, but indeed the new Congress comes in on January 3rd. And that very well might be as things are looking right now, a democratically controlled Senate and House. So that's maybe another point of leverage. So just to have you uh, talk about what you think of as the points of leverage and how those two mechanisms might work.
3: Yeah, well, just to complete that last point, there is a kind of, underground competitive election taking place right now over who will control the most state delegations in the US House of Representatives. I mean, the reason why Trump keeps threatening to force everything into the house as if it were in his control, but it's not. But the reason why that looks like his ultimate destination to him is because presently uh, Republicans control 26 of the state delegations and we only have 22 and Michigan and Pennsylvania are both tied. And um, ordinarily, you know, Trump wouldn't be interested in getting anything in the House because it's one member, one vote. But here under the 12th Amendment, it's one state, one vote. And so um, the burden has been upon us to win not just control of the House back and expansion of our majority, but also to flip at least one state that the Republicans control now. Uh, we hope two or three, Montana, Alaska, Florida, would be great. Um, and then to bring those two tied states, Michigan and Pennsylvania, into the Democratic column so that if it, there were actually a so-called contingent election in the failure of anybody to assemble a majority of the electors appointed under the 12th Amendment and it went to the House, we'd be able to win that. But look, I mean, the, i the, all of that, I think, is pretty unlikely. Um the, you know, the most likely thing is that uh, the Republicans try to reenact some kind of Bush versus Gore scenario, which is using their now six to three illegitimate uh, six, three majority advantage in the Supreme Court to intervene to stop the counting of ballots. But remember, the only reason that worked was because the whole election came down to one state, Florida, in an extremely close vote in that state. It was basically tied. Um, and after Katherine Harris, who doubled as the head of the Bush campaign and the secretary of state, got through with a lot of voter purges and other forms of suppression and disenfranchisement, um, they were able to torture out that little victory um, after the five justices in Bush first score came in and ordered the Florida Supreme Court to stop the recounts of ballots on the dubious theory that it violated equal protection to have different potential hypothetical counting of the hanging chads in different counties, which, of course, if it were true, that was taking place before. In any event, it should have invalidated the whole election. But their point was really just to, um, you know, give Bush the election and they succeeded in doing it. But again, I mean, that was a fairly extraordinary configuration of circumstances. If Biden is ahead not in one swing state, but five or six swing states, and there's 18 different issues out there and so on. Um, I mean it would be an act of really breathtaking and epic judicial corruption to thread the needle in such a way as to <laughs> just hand it off to uh, to Donald Trump. So that so that's number one. The number two is it, assuming that 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 there's going to be a robust popular majority that translates into a robust electoral college majority for Biden, at that point their, their major final play is to get Republican controlled legislatures in swing states that go Democrat, Pennsylvania being uh, high up on the list, Wisconsin, North Carolina, uh, to get them to cry chaos and fraud with Donald Trump and then to use that as a smokescreen to overturn the election result, nullify the existing election law adopt a new election law and simply hand electors off to Trump or split them 50-50 between the two or do something else now um there are lots and lots of problems with they're trying to do this one of one problem is that the legislatures in adopting the current laws acted within the state constitutional regime meaning it was signed into law by the governor here they would be purporting if they could meet and in some states they're not even going to be able to meet unless the governor allows them calls them back in a special session, like in North Carolina. But assuming that they could meet and they were to do it, they would have to pass a bill that goes to the governor. And it so happens that there are Democratic governors in every state where the Republicans could overturn a popular majority for Biden in a swing state, except for Florida, where they do run the tables with the legislature the governor the secretary of state the attorney general everything in florida is a major danger zone flashpoint for that reason but so that's one problem the second problem is the electoral count act of 1887 says the safe harbor deadline of december 14th this year um is uh, for states that turn the electors over following a pre-existing election law in other words that statute anticipates and contemplates precisely what they're trying to do, which is just to nullify an election after it's taken place and then decree another winner. So, okay, so then the next step is it goes to uh, Congress. We're meeting in joint session on January 6th. The president of the Senate, the vice president of the United States, Pence is reading the, the, the slates as they come in. And so say he prefers uh, the Republican deputized flates. He says, Pennsylvania is the one that was sent in by the legislature, not by the governor and the Secretary of State. At that point, the House of Representatives will object. If the Senate is in Democratic hands, they'll object too. If not, we'll get you know at least a few senators to object with us. That will be enough to activate the Provision Electoral Count Act that makes us separate, go into separate chambers, and there we discuss the objection. The Democrats would find almost undoubtedly that this is not a valid slate, this is a counterfeit slate, we reject it. If the Senate agrees with us, at that point it's definitive and we've rejected that slate. And then uh, presumably the VP brings up the other slate that was sent in in time. If the Senate is in Republican hands and the two chambers are at odds at that point, the, we're supposed to be bound by the certificate of ascertainment that the governor of the state has issued. And in Pennsylvania, that would presumably be for the person who won the real election. So all of which is to say, um, you know, there are different scenarios there. We are ready for each one to try to defend the popular vote, defend the electoral college vote. If for some reason they were able to uh, deny Biden a rightful electoral college majority and it got kicked into the House of Representatives, um, there it depends on who was elected before and that there are various procedural mechanisms that um, we can use to try to make sure that the popular vote is ratified, but that is the danger, you know? So nothing's a done deal and we're gonna have to fight for, you know, I was thinking about Ben Franklin, you know, he said a republic if you can keep it to the lady who talked to him when he left the Constitutional convention, you know, what have we wrought in this election? I think it's a landslide if we can keep it, if we can defend it at every level.
2: Right.
1: By the way, I, I I know we only have seven or eight minutes left, and I want to go to Kavita's question, but I, I I feel compelled to say, just having come out of the discussion we did on election security, that there's a lot of focus on the presidential election. But the Senate election and the down-ballot elections are extremely consequential, there are a number of key states where the secretaries of state have a lot of authority. Uh, and the one that comes to mind is Georgia, um, where that secretary of state has already demonstrated some problems when we had the Stacey Abrams election. Uh, and so you could you know, have a Biden landslide, but you could lose control of the Senate due to individual acts in the states. If you could respond to that for just one minute before we get to Kavita's question.
3: Um, i mean it's it's true um the the good thing i think is that um most state boards of election um and i think the intelligence community are on top of trying to deal with the security threats coming from russia and other malign anti-democratic actors and were alert to it i mean that's the main difference between now and four years ago but it i mean it's definitely a serious threat and they've They've told us so, um, and um, you know, but one of the positive parts about Donald Trump constantly antagonizing the military and intelligence community and trashing, you know, people as suckers and losers for doing military service and, you know, making up lies about people in the FBI and so on is uh, those people are not going to be in the service of Donald Trump's re-election campaign. They're gonna be doing their jobs.
1: We've got about five more minutes of Congressman's time, Kavita.
0: I'll I'll make it brief because I, I I've hello Kavita. I, hello. Nice uh, to see you. Nice to see you, and thanks for taking time. I'll I'll make this brief because I think you've answered this in other settings, but I want to be even more direct and ask. We know that COVID relief talks have stalled largely because of this kind of blame game that um, Republicans Trump administration are playing with, you know, kind of what Speaker Pelosi has put out. How can we, the, the more time that goes on, and this is something David pointed out, that's right. It gets more and more expensive when, as it gets more urgent, which is happening now as cases are going up. Congressman, how can the country have any faith that there'll be any relief and, and, and just even more pointed, you've rightfully criticized in the CARES Act, some of the tax breaks and some of what we would call kind of handouts for people who really don't need the relief, rightfully called that out. How can we make sure that does not happen again? And what are we looking at as we go into a pretty dark winter with cases rising and more people losing jobs?
2: Um, I mean, I wish we had an
3: hour to talk about all that. Look, the. Um, The first thing we've got to do um, when we have regime change is we need uh, a real plan, a real strategy to defeat COVID-19, not to allow it to wash over the population uh, as vindication of their strategy of herd immunity, which is not a strategy for fighting a disease. It is a public health description of what's left after the ravages of a disease have made their way through a population. So, we're going to need a real strategy. Uh, We're also going to need real relief for our people who are suffering under this situation. And the Republicans, frankly, do not give a damn. Um, You know, they've pretty much gotten out of this process what they've wanted to get out of the process. And it does not surprise me that they ended up basically pulling the plug on it multiple times and then just walking away from the whole thing the way that Trump has walked away from. Uh, the war against COVID. I mean, he had declared it a war and then he surrendered immediately and began lampooning our side and mocking people wearing masks and so on. So I think that, um, you know, the election, everything rides on the election, Kavita. I mean, you know, that initial CARES Act was a perfect expression of the correlation of political forces in Washington. I mean, we got the unemployment money, the $600 a week, and we got... A lot of public health money, and we got the state and county because of the House of Representatives. But the Senate got, you know, all of the corporate tax breaks and the giveaways that they were looking for. That was all they were interested in. Using this as an opportunity more to repay their constituency. So, um, <clears throat> you know, if we elected sixty senators um, in the Senate, or if we change the rules in the Senate. If we've got a, a robust majority in the House of Representatives and we get a strong fighting Democratic administration, I think we're going to be able to get a really strong package that we can do a lot of stuff with. And it can begin, it can establish the beginnings of a new reconstruction, which is what we need in the country. We've got to use this nightmare and this tragedy to build up the physical infrastructure, the social infrastructure, the education infrastructure, the the expand democracy and voting rights, we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and so on. It should be the beginning of a new era of creative progressive legislation.
1: I think that's a, a great response, and it does underscore to me um, that as we, as we come out on the other side of this election, the job of a new administration is not going to be simply to undo what Trump did or to pick up where we left off, but it's gonna be the job that is a lot akin to what happened after the depression or after a major war, where we need a new blueprint and we need a new vision. Are you confident we're gonna get there?
3: Yeah, but I mean, I liken it to a third reconstruction. You know, We had one that lasted 12 years after the Civil War before it was undone by white supremacy. We had a second one, in the civil rights movement with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. Um, And um, I think the groundwork has been laid for a new reconstruction in America. I mean, it's almost as if you need a a new reconstruction and a Green New Deal together because of the the converging crises in the country. I mean, we've got COVID-19 and we got the opioid crisis. We've got the economic collapse that has followed in the wake of the plague. Then we've got climate change to deal with, um, but to me the single most successful answer to Trump, who has been, um, who has so disoriented the country and flummoxed people because of just the sheer uh, breathtaking nature of the chaos and uh, the reactionary politics, the best answer has been Black Lives Matter, because you know, for Donald Trump, it's all about the deep state and looking for the deep state and finding, um, you know, his enemies hidden in all these conspiracy theories. And Black Lives Matter has retaught the country the lesson that the real deep state in America is racism and white supremacy. That has been the poison that was built into so many of our institutional and constitutional structures that needs to be rooted out if we're going to make progress as a national community. Um, So I'm excited about the possibility because progressive politics is winning all over the country, not just democratic politics, but progressive politics that is interracial, that is multi-generational, that stands strong on the movements of the past, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, the environmental movement, the labor movement, the human rights movement. we have reclaimed our inheritance. And even after you know Steve Bannon and the Proud Boys and the white supremacists and Donald Trump and the dismantling of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the attacks on the Affordable Care Act, even after you know, their Supreme Court nominee and everything, we are still here and we are still fighting and we're gonna win a big robust majority in the 2020 election. And so people have got to fall out of love with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is a problem if it starts to strike down our legislation, uh, and then we're gonna have to deal with it. But right now, let's build our legislative program to move America forward again. That's where we are.
1: That's a, a, a great summation. We've already used more of your time than we have. We're really grateful that you could join us. Hopefully we'll talk to you again afterwards about the great victory and the third reconstruction. Um,
3: Everybody, go vote. Thank you so much, David, for the great work you do. Ryan, Cavito, it's always a pleasure, everybody. Thank you very much.
1: Bye-bye, Congressman. This week we held our first virtual event. The discussion was led by Ed Luce and it featured conversation about my new book, Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. If you missed it and you're a member, Uh, And you should be a member. And if you're not a member, you should become a member. But you can watch it in its entirety on the DSRnetwork.com. But speaking of membership, we have a very special offer because now is a really good time to become a member. If you become a founding insider, you'll receive a Deep State Radio mask, which will make you safer. And a complimentary signed copy of my book. We bought a bunch of them, so bookstores shouldn't worry. We bought some at full price. Um, And uh, if you become a a founding member now, um, you will get both the mask and the book and the membership. Member benefits also include uh, ad-free listing, You get access to our members-only Slack community, so you can post questions all the time. You get automatic discounts on swag. You'll get discounts on all upcoming virtual events, and we plan to do a lot more of those. And soon, members will be able to attend select tapings of Deep State Radio. So to learn more, visit thedsrnetwork.com and select membership levels. And if you don't want to do that right now, but you do want to buy the book, Go to your local bookseller and buy a copy of Traitor. I think you will like it. It was certainly written with the listeners of Deep State Radio in mind. Thank you. Well, that was energizing. That seems like a guy who 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 has a sense that there may be a victory around the corner. Uh, before we get to a couple of questions, because I got one for Ryan and one for Kavita. Do you guys have any reaction? Uh to 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 what you just heard from
2: Ryan and then Kavita? I mean, I think that he put his finger in the pulse of what I've been thinking is the key thing for people to focus on, which is what you know, what what's left for Donald Trump? And I think what's left for Donald Trump is in terms of what is his path to victory, it's uh he's signaled it to us. It's that he's going to try to stop vote counts. Um and one of the answers to that, I could speak to that in terms of legal issues and what the signaling that seems to be going on from Justice Kavanaugh to the Trump campaign and back and forth with uh recent opinion by Justice Kavanaugh uh, suggesting an opening for that kind of legal trickery. But I do think uh, what Representative Raskin said as well is so important, which is if there's a landslide on Tuesday, it's over. It's game over. They just... The legal shenanigans and trickery does not work if there's a landslide that includes multiple swing states convincingly in Biden's column. And Ryan, what's um, a
0: landslide to you? What's What constitutes? Because I'm just curious.
2: So one way of thinking of it is so what's the margin of litigation? So how close is it that there's actually room for them to litigate? Okay. So, so one part is that even if you imagine that there's a margin within three, four states and it comes down to those three, four states okay. that on their own, they look like Florida with Bush uh, v. Gore, that there's litigation to be had what he was saying there, I think, is right as well. It's so impossible to think that the Supreme Court could somehow thread the needle that all three states come out in favor of the Trump campaign. If they lose any one of those three, it, that's game over. That's just assuming there's a margin of uh, for litigation. And then in that margin, what many legal commentators are saying is even with the huge thumb on the scale by Kavanaugh, and it looks like at least three other justices so far, uh, Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas, if you look at their recent opinions in the last week, mm-hmm even with that, that would maybe block a certain kind of mail-in ballot that is counted after November 3rd. But then you actually have to think that, that like, does Pennsylvania actually come down to those mail-in ballots? There's a, that's, that's another way in which all of these scenarios are very low probability that obviously high risk because of the impact of them. So there's that. But if Biden wins, I would say by three percentage points in Pennsylvania, it's over. If Biden wins on in Florida, and especially on Tuesday night being announced in Florida, that's another way in which it's kind of, it's over. Um, so I think that's the way I, I'm, I'm thinking of it. And I do think that what Trump has said and what Ju- Justice Brett Kavanaugh has said is they will try to stop vote counts no matter how illegitimate or crazy the legal theory um, after Tuesday night. I have to
1: say, I'll just throw in here before Kavita, you go to your reaction, but I would worry about that. Kavita, what was your reaction otherwise?
0: Yeah. I, I, so mine had more to do with uh, his response to the question about COVID relief. And I mean, I, you know, I think we've been saying on this podcast that uh, you know, kind of ending the filibuster might actually be the most important thing we could do in addition to getting Donald Trump out of office. And I stand by that for all the reasons I think that Congressman Raskin kind of said like, yeah, I mean, the House had one point of view. And then because of the Senate dynamics, there's another. That story is as old as the dawn of time, like Speaker Pelosi's had, you know, she's had to deal with that for decades now. So I'm, I'm incredibly concerned that we could have we have a Biden White House, we could still have either a Senate, a Republican Senate, or even if it's a 50-50 with a Biden, you know, White House kind of tipping, tipping the edge over, just it's not a filibuster, it, it's filibuster proof, but, you know, you always have kind of these like limitations, and that we still see structural impasse to doing anything And the Republicans will still throw Trump under the bus, but they will still be the party that kind of says no. And and it's not even no to progressive causes. I think people have somehow conflated like, oh, this is all like because, you know, the AOC or the Progressive Caucus is unreasonable. None of what has been suggested by House Democrats and Senate Democrats is, in my mind, fiscally unreasonable. So I'm very concerned that That will lead then to a 2022, you know, shift in the house. And I don't know, I feel like I've seen this. I don't know. Ryan probably seen, I feel like I've seen this movie over and over again. And unlike kind of you know, kind of Obama era where we had an economic upswing and a recover, you know, we're gonna be in the Mm. still in a recession towards a depression.
1: Wow. Well, there are two more questions that I've got. We've got about uh, 10 minutes left. Um, And and I've got one for each of you. Obviously, if there's other things you want to talk, bring it up. But um, Ryan, I've noticed some tweeting by you um, around a story that is just not going to make it into the bandwidth of as many Americans as it should. And that is the recent reporting concerning Turkey and Hulk. Bank and the intervention of the Trump administration on behalf of the Erdogan regime in Turkey. And, you know, Americans can only keep so much in the front of their minds or in their minds at all. And right now they are fried. (laughs) I I think, you know, to the extent to which somebody says, well, let me tell you this story about Bank or let me tell you this story about Erdogan in Turkey. Most (laughs) Americans are like, nope, sorry, too much. I can't go there. But to me and you've been bringing this out this story is really important because it is a case study in the most overt corruption that, that you could imagine. It's like you know in a textbook how to be corrupt. This is how to be corrupt and involves the president, the attorney general, and so so I was just wondering if you could first of all do you agree with me and secondly could you in two minutes in a in a way that'll drive it home for the person on main street explain why a story about hawk bank is relevant to somebody who's sitting in their home right now in muncie
2: yeah so i agree with you um it's potentially as explosive if not more explosive than the entire set of allegations with the ukraine uh scandal and what it boils down to is an Extraordinary level of public corruption on the part of the President, Attorney General Barr, and acting Attorney General uh, Whitaker, in that um, it's almost defies belief. The President of the United States appears to have financial interest in his investments in Turkey and wants to be on the good side of Turkey's Prime Minister Erdogan, which was alleged in John Bolton's book, for example. And the New York Times has an incredible. Incredible investigative report based on, I think I said over two dozen officials that they spoke to They came out today, which goes many steps further than what we've known before. Basically, the president of the United States, under pressure from Erdogan, intervened in the Southern District of New York to try to stop a righteous prosecution of this Turkish bank and Turkish individuals. And what the bank did, which is just remarkable, is... Broke the sanctions. They were sanction busters. So they broke the sanctions against Iran. They facilitated Iran's nuclear program. So, with US national interests on the line and a righteous prosecution of sanctions busters by the Southern District of New York, the President of the United States, through Attorney General Barr, tried to pressure the Southern District of New York to drop the case. And there are two additional elements, among others, in the New York Times report that I thought were huge. One, what many people were very worried about seems to be true. The New York Times says that the recent firing of Jeffrey Berman, the US attorney for the Southern District of New York by A.G. Barr and Trump, was a key reason, was because he tried to maintain the integrity of the prosecution. And so he was fired for that. That Berman might
1: try to maintain the integrity. Berman
2: the tried to maintain the integrity of it. He was running the prosecution in the Southern District of New York and Barr and Trump fired him because- no, I didn't
1: want you to get into the business of accusing Barr of integrity.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right, using this, the words in the same sentence. <laughs> and then the second piece that is just a remarkable story in a story uh, given the run up to the election is that Erdogan tried to do the same thing with Biden, not just like the Obama administration, but Biden in a Policide meeting in August of 2016, said to Biden, I need you to to have this case dropped. I need you to fire and get rid of, at the time, Preet Bharara. Um, And Biden said back to him, quote, if the president were to take this action, this into his own words, sorry, quote, if the president were to take this into his own hands, what would happen would be he would be impeached, end quote. And Biden was right, because it would be impeachable conduct for the President of the United States to try to take on that action and weigh in on the Justice Department's prosecution. And that seems to be exactly what Trump and Barr did. Um, So the two men were tested, Trump and uh, Biden, under very similar circumstances, One said the right thing and the other one uh, did something so reprehensible that uh, John Bolton is interviewed for the New York Times and says, this looks like obstruction of justice, which is a crime.
1: Okay, before I get to Kavita, I do wanna say one other thing though, because it didn't really come up and it hasn't been in in the story. But um, of course, Michael Flynn was a, a, a lobbyist for the Turks and had also ties and one of the very first things that the Trump administration did was get rid of Preet Bharara. Yeah. And, and you know, you just, I mean, I, I can't sort of show a smoking gun there, but the, the Biden story shows this was on the Turks' mind before Trump got in. And so clearly the Turks had, to, I mean, <coughs> it stands to reason they were delivering that message to the Trump administration during the transition. And and that happened, right? So just flag it, but to me, it's a giant story and you described it extremely well. The big story for the next two months in the United States, Kavita, is that the worst of the COVID crisis hasn't happened yet. And that we're at a point now, another day of 80,000 cases, um, uh, exceeding 40,000 hospital beds occupied all the arrows are pointing up um, and it's, it's very easy to imagine that we will have our worst totals mm-hmm. in terms of cases, yeah. in terms of hospital beds, in terms of deaths over the next several months. And that as part of that, we're going to have to consider doing what Europe is doing. I mean, the president of France got it, you know, up today and said, we're locking down. Not, not schools, they figured out their way around that, but bars, restaurants, and activity. Um, and that's, hap- that's happening across places that were better managed than we are. Yep. So doctor, what's the prognosis?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's grim. And I, I feel like I say that a lot here, but this time I'm kind of in my soul, pretty concerned that we're seeing... Um, all 50 states and territories now are reporting kind of that infamous infectivity rate above one which is the opposite of what we want we want for every person to be infected for them to infect nobody else that's really the goal that means you've stopped it in its tracks we're already seeing now pretty much across the country even in where i'm sitting and where you're sitting and ryan's sitting. We're still we're starting to see an increase in cases in New York and in the district and Virginia and Maryland. So it is very likely, like all things, that governors and mayors and local officials are going to be left to their own devices. You already you already do have, you saw this battle between Pritzker in Illinois and Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, where you know two Democrats and Lightfoot who had been praised in her approach is now being vehemently criticized. For not kind of you know calling out bars and restaurants as places, and Governor Pritzker who is trying to say like we need to have you know less capacity everywhere, we need to be very thoughtful. I think that's exactly what the picture is going to be. It's going to be chaotic with different localities doing different things. By the way, including masks. Um, Tampa, Florida just had a ruling to kind of extend the use of masks as a mandate in schools. Why that's even like some sort of debate point at this point in time is just telling you how ludicrous the approach is. So we are and and then just as a little point of trivia. People have been talking about this rightfully based on the numbers as a third peak. It's not our third wave, but technically it's a peak. We've never ever ever really gotten out of our first wave. If you take our three peaks but then kind of imprint this upon previous pandemics, 1918 flu, for example, you'll see that that pandemic had three peaks. The difference, is that um, the second peak was the most deadly, with the most cases coinciding with the winter. That's kind of squarely, squarely where we are at. So the numbers of cases, the deaths that go along with it. We're getting better at treating people in the hospital. And there are treatments now. They're not cures, as the president likes to say. But they are shortening hospital stays. They're helping people get out of the hospital off of a ventilator. Those are good things. But those are in tight supply as well and being rationed, essentially. So. It is still very going into this holiday season, you know, any deep state listeners who know anybody or thinking themselves about going someplace, getting on a plane, driving someplace and going anywhere with more people, I would reconsider all of those options. And if you've got children, many schools in the country have reopened because they have tried to figure out what to do. I would just do all of that with caution because children are probably not the likely spreaders but adults working in those schools are highly likely to get the virus, transmit the virus, and it's still unclear exactly what the role of children are. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very worried. I do think we will have a vaccine, but it will not, between a, a vaccine that's safe and effective, enough doses for all Americans, and then keep in mind it takes weeks for you to develop immunity in your own body from a vaccine. We are not looking at kind of broader ability to kind of you know, artificially deal with this virus uh, until summer earliest, summer of 2021. So we, you know, it's, buckle up, it's it's gonna be hard. And that's why listening to the Congressman kind of talk about how we're not going to have economic or even public health relief until we change Congress is hard, It's it's hard to swallow.
1: Yeah, and as you said, the problem could be worse then. If we spend the next two months really getting slammed by this and that the economic consequences for an already fragile economy could be much worse uh, in the remaining 15 or 20 or 30 seconds that we've got here. We don't actually have a time clock, but I just don't want to take too much of your time. Um, how does the flu factor into all this?
0: That So we do have a robust CDC um, monitoring system called the, ILA, the influenza-like illness kind of monitoring system, little point of trivia, it's actually what was used to try to monitor kind of COVID in the beginning, um, not realizing that that's actually not an accurate system to look at how much uh, kind of COVID illness we were seeing. So we think that flu rates were still in the beginning of the season, we think that flu rates will be lower than previous years. And that's actually, by the way, what other countries are experiencing, those who see the flu before we do because of um, just because of the continents. Uh, so we think the flu season will not be as severe. However, it is unclear, kind of, what happens if you have someone with a mild case of the flu and COVID. That's just not something we've got a lot of experience with. So that's the reason people are talking about kind of a twindemic. And I'll say the third part of this kind of pandemic that we haven't factored in, but is real, is you you hear it called COVID fatigue, um, but it's it's really thinking about people are tired of being told to quarantine. You know. Lots of people don't want to quarantine for 14 days that they had a close contact. People are just sick of, honestly, it's a it's a very American concept to kind of be told what to do and have to do it. And it's an un-American concept rather. And so it's not normal to um, kind of keep these restrictions in place for so long without feeling like there's some tangible light at the end of the tunnel. I actually think that could undermine everything, and we probably need to do a better job acknowledging that.
1: No doubt. Uh, certainly, the advocates for that uh, it's un-American point of view, uh, like Governor Christie Nome, who I will nominate here as the stupidest governor in the United States, um, uh, ha, you know, uh, have led to South Dakota now having an off-the-chart infection rate. You know, to preserve their freedoms um you know all of these people seem to have neglected things like seat belts and motorcycle helmets and not driving while drunk and other sort of basic precautions having people in restaurants have to wash their hands you know before they serve food, <laughs> uh, which are all laws but in any event um it is a it is a dire possibility we live in a moment where, the election is a source of hope and fear, where having a new government is a source of hope, but uh, the, the context in which that government may come into office, both economically and in terms of the pandemic, is also a source of great unease. Uh, and so we'll have to continue discussing it. I feel very fortunate each week to have a discussion that is illuminated um, by you guys and uh, by your perspectives on government and the law and, and medicine and science. Uh, and we'll keep doing that as we as we go on through this period. For all of you who are listening out there, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We've got a lot of interesting things coming up uh, associated with the election. We'll do a show the day after the election. At the end of next week, we're also going to do a show with a couple of historians. Um, looking at where Trump fits in history ties into my book coincidentally. But, you know, you're under no obligation as a loyal fan of deep state radio to buy my book. Uh, We, we can't even tell whether you have yet or not. Um, That would be a real intrusion into your privacy. So we're kind of on the honor system here. (laughs) And like, if you've listened to, you know, like more than one episode and you haven't bought the book yet, yeah, you're letting well, you're letting me down, and I'm personally hurt. Um, but I'll recover. There, there, are bigger issues to deal with. Um, but you might, if you know, if you have. Well, I'll leave it to you. In any event, stay well, and join us again soon here at Deep State Radio. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, everybody, for listening.